a reading from the letter to the Church of God in Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, church. I always wanted to be taller than I am, so anytime I have to change the mic, I feel like, oh, I'm so short. But the other thing, I'm not. I'm not funny when I'm up here, so anytime I see Tim, I feel like, whoa, I'm so glad he's part of our church, and different giftings, and different humor code. (laughs) Um, I bring you greetings from Pastor Bill. He has been pretty sick for the past three days, so pray for him. I'm sure he'll be back next Sunday, but pray for him and reach out to him with any words of encouragement that you can give him. So I am so excited. I actually get pretty excited about Lent because it's my confession time. Sometimes I'm not very good about having my daily devotions. Sometimes it's like two minutes, reading a phrase or praying, very short. So I set aside uh, Lent to be better about it. So you heard from Tim about the Lenten reader. I actually subscribed to the email newsletter from them. And it's been coming to me each morning. And it's been so good for me to sit. And sometimes it was 30 minutes, sometimes it was just 10 minutes. But there was something really anchoring about engaging with Jesus during this season that I would highly recommend to you guys. So as we said, Lent has started. This is our part. First Sunday of our Lenten season, and we are beginning a very exciting Lenten series. And as you can see behind me, we have a new title. It's called Finding God in Unexpected Places. 
By the way, another shout out actually to Deanna Chowdriver. Did you know that every sermon series has new graphics? And she does this every time. It's true, Rochelle helps a lot too. But sometimes they don't get a whole lot of advance notice. So I think, you know, with Deanna wearing so many different hats, she probably had just only a couple of days to come up with beautiful things like the graphics behind me. So this series actually is not a traditional sermon series, but it's going to be a lot about our CUL members' testimonies. So during the Lent Sundays, each CUL person who signed up actually to share about their stories and their stories and struggles of finding God in their suffering, but also finding God in their healing. So some of these folks actually never spoke up here. And it takes a lot of courage, especially when you're bringing in vulnerable stories. So I want to invite all of us to be ready each Sunday to be blessed by these speakers, but also to bless them with our open hearts. But also, you can talk to them afterwards and express your appreciation, but you can also talk to them and say, hey, I really like what you said about this. That shows that you actually paid attention and remember something from what they said. So uh, I'm really excited, but I think this could be a season of encouragement for one another. So today, I am awfully excited to invite our first speaker, Sylvia Ahn, to come up. All right, so can I pray for you? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for Sylvia and for the ways that you have been journeying with her throughout her life. And as she's coming to share her stories, but also her whole self, I pray that you'll protect and strengthen her heart, but also her words with your spirit. And we pray that you'll open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have to say through Sylvia's words. Amen. Thank you. All right. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> so um, I'm going to introduce myself for those who don't know me. So my name is Sylvia Ahn, and I am a mother to two young little rascals that you see running around here with an adorable dog named Waffles and four chickens and a wonderful husband named Eddie who's sitting out in the audience right now. And someone who still dreams of my glory days being a basketball player, a volleyball player, and a dancer, but am decrepit and stiff. And so that's, that's a little bit about me. I'm also an Enneagram 8, um, and my Myers-Briggs is, I'm in between an E and an ISFJ. 
Um, so today's sharing is about um, me not really trusting myself. One, because I'm just naturally an indecisive person. And two, um, I was formed by Western Christian theology and church um, and my C- Korean cultural upbringing which I will get into a little bit later. So I was also born and raised in Los Angeles as an adolescent by immigrant parents and the church and was politically radicalized at my time at Mills College here in Oakland and spiritually formed as an adult through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, um, which is a campus ministry that serves college students nationwide. And I was um, with them for about 18 years up until December of 2022. Um, So last May, I also graduated with my master's in social entrepreneurship at Pepperdine University and was jobless. (laughs) Um, It was a super scary and exciting time for me to step out of the perceived safety of these two different institutions that formed me. Um, Scary because I no longer had the structure of academia and university guiding my next steps, but also exciting because I was a free woman. Um, And it was the first time I was truly left alone to make my own decisions without an institution guiding me. And then reality hit, bills needed to be paid, and I battled with all that fun feelings of being unemployed. So I asked questions of myself like, why isn't anybody hiring me? Um, Am I viable in the market? Uh, Do I want to start my own venture or find a job that aligns with my values and won't make me miserable? Those are, is that a tall ask? I don't know. I don't know. Um, So fortunately, that following August, so last August, um, brought a really good problem. Um, I had to choose between two job offers, both of which I deeply cared about. And I know some of you have walked with me and really grateful for your, your prayers in that process. So to give some context, um, the first job was a, felt, uh, was a place that felt most aligned to my values and skill sets, while the second job offered um, emerged kind of from a heartbreak of being rejected by that first offer. Now, if that sounds confusing, um, it basically means that first job circled back to me uh, around the same time I was offered the second job, asking if I'd like to reconsider um, working for them after initially turning me down. So the second offer came about because I made a name for myself uh, by hustling my way into the district attorney's office, volunteering my time, and Um, persistently expressing that they needed to hire me. So you can ask me about that story later. Um, But I want to highlight that in this in-between moment when I had to decide which job I wanted to go with. It was truly a roller coaster of emotions and confusion when I first got rejected first offer. I thought it was God-appointed and I honestly felt like I was a shoo-in Um, that I would get that first job because God answered my prayers by surprising me with an old connection to the organization. So if you can show the next slide. Um, This was kind of my prayers in January 2023 while I was still in um, my grad school program, but these were some of the desires that I held. Um, Under career, I wrote creativity, connections, and confidence. And um, like I had mentioned, the first job there was the person who was interviewing me was someone from Mills College who saw me do a lot of work in the community. Like, 
there is this is this is wild <laughs> like and she was really excited because she saw me kind of grow up after Mills and I, I had no idea she was going to be there and so I was like this must be God I know I'm going to get this job but then I didn't that first round <laughs> um I, I grieved pretty heavily, but moved on rationalizing that, you know, God must have closed that door for a reason. Um, and then the district attorney opportunity came up, and that experience of working with domestic violence survivors felt so holy and sacred during those two months. Um, and so when I got the call that the first offer wanted me back, my world kind of turned upside down. I felt paralyzed. I had absolutely no idea what God was doing and that it was messing up my belief that God would make my path straight. That's what we read in scripture, that God would make our path straight. But it didn't feel like that. It felt like all over the place. I was like, what the heck's happening? I don't know. What's going on? Um, and I processed with Eddie's, with Eddie so many times. Eddie was like, there's a very clear, like, I know what the answer is. And I was like, oh, I don't know what the answer is. Um, about what I should do. And he's like, it's pretty clear which one you should take. And, but for me, like, it wasn't. And I wanted God to make that decision between which job I should choose. Both at the time felt extremely viable because of the amount of emotional and personal investment that I made in both. Honestly, I, made, I did four rounds, y'all, for that first job. And it was a lot. It was intense. Um, and so, I, and yet I felt so frustrated that I didn't truly... Uh, trust myself um, to make a decision, but that I needed God to give me a clear sign for my next steps. So if you go to the next slide, where was this coming from? What made me not trust myself? So like I shared a little bit, um, I'm second generation Korean American, um, daughter to immigrants, and I grew up with collectivist values mixed in with Americans, America's value of individualism. So I know when to sacrifice my needs for the whole um, and also learn to look out for my own needs. I just want to be clear that I live in this both and and not this either or. Um, and a disclaimer that the lens I bring to you today comes from the viewpoint of being culturally and spiritually taught how to deny my desires and to not trust myself. I also want to make it explicit that my message is a bit nuanced and shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all gospel, that my truth may not be the truth for all of you. So these are some of the lessons I learned um, and I'm still learning, uh, and my hope is that you're just, you'll just journey with me as a community to see my process because I'm still working it out. And anything else that you receive from this will be bonus, so yay! <laughs> um, so going back to my initial question, why did I not trust myself to make a decision? Where did my distrust of self come from, and at what point did I start not trusting myself? So I grew up in an era where Christianity was the sensible choice in the late 80s and 90s. Uh, my, my theology was formed by individual salvation theology. I don't even know what the word is. I'm just going to call it that. And the Great Commission. So to be a good Christian, I accepted that I was inherently a sinner who needed to be saved from myself and that it was my duty to spread the gospel that others can have eternal life with Jesus if we acknowledge our individual sins and ask for forgiveness to escape the consequence of living in hell. Who wants to live in hell, right? Um, so next slide. 
And that's what we read in scripture. It says, all of us who lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So when I read this as a child and growing up, uh, this first part of this verse is hella judgmental and condemning, right? Um, For me, when I read it back then, this positions people, in the way that I interpret it, uh, as people starting off as sinful, that we are inherently born with sin and um, are sinful, gratifying our cravings and following our desires and thoughts. So when I read this at face value, I felt super guilty and questioned myself if I could be trusted or can trust my desires and thoughts. Instead, verses and narratives of prominent figures who preached messages that supported my interpretation like this made me strive to learn what God's will was and that being a good Christian meant I needed to be obedient to scripture stripping of my ability to cultivate and explore my desires. It felt like through my obedience to scripture like these, no matter how misinformed and misinterpreted I read the text, it was paired with Western Christian narratives that reinforced this belief that there was only one right answer about what I should do next. So next slide. Sermons from prominent figures like Billy Graham, Louis Giglow, books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye. How many of us have read that, actually? (laughs) Purity culture, right? Um, Worship songs that centered on the individual experience with Christ instead of the whole, and large Christian gatherings like Harvest Crusade all formed and sustained my one-dimensional belief that the world was black and white right or wrong, one way and not multiple truths. So my spiritual consciousness was being formed by outside voices that actually had political and spiritual influences for better or worse. Now, I don't have time to get into how Christian nationalism formed America's political and spiritual consciousness, but I highly encourage us to look into the moral majority movement from the 70s and 80s when you get a chance. And so I believe this was when I started to become suspicious of myself. It became super difficult to know how I felt in my body since I've been told not to trust my body and desires for a very, very long time because I was by nature sinful. What was required of me was to be obedient to the text instead of allowing myself uh, to be curious about cultivating my whole personhood with Jesus. I fully bought into this kind of theology growing up. I held every thought and action captive to verses like these um, to measure if I was worthy of God and that every mistake or you know whatever would land me in hell if I didn't ask for forgiveness. And so it makes decision and it makes sense that when making big decisions like choosing which college I should go to or which job I should take, I start getting super insecure about what I want because I'm too fearful of making the wrong choice. I don't trust myself to make the right choice for for me, which also makes me think about 
the impact it would have on my family. And so I get desperate, clinging to God to please show me what I need to do. But I never realized up until recently that pleading for God to show me what to do next is in some ways giving up my agency. And when I get into these moments when I want God to make my decisions, uh, I end up releasing any sort of responsibility to myself. Because if things go south, it's way easier to say that God made me do it, that I can just blame God, right? Um, And don't you think that maybe how we justify certain decisions and policies in the name of God, um, that we can sometimes use scripture or our spiritual authority because of the text to say that it was God's will so that we can let go of any sort of accountability? I think that's where I honestly can default to because it feels safe to let go of accountability. That I can just blame God without owning my part in the decisions and actions I take. It feels way easier and safer when there's someone or something to blame. All right, next slide. And then we have cultural influences that get layered on Western Christian narratives that reinforces the value of obedience and sacrificing self for the whole. So part of that is in my country's deep uh, roots in Confucianism that runs in our Korean culture where we have been conditioned to be obedient through principles like filial piety and loyalty. So I grew up with immigrant parents who gave their life for the greater whole, our family. So let's start with my mom, my wonderful mother, uh, self-sacrificing mom. So all of us, I hope, grew up learning behaviors from our parents or people who played a significant role in our lives, right? And my mom was the one who deeply formed my existence today. And so I see a lot of myself in my mom and have adopted some behaviors um, that showed little and big ways of her giving up her desires for the sake of the whole. So for example, my mom's love language was cutting fruit for my sister and I. And I remember her giving like the choicest parts of the fruits while she was left eating the remaining bits off the fruit. And in Korean, we call that koptegi, which means like the leftover. So literally, like when we, for example, like would cut up mangoes, she would not eat the, the fat, juicy parts. She would literally eat off of the bone of the mango. And I was like, what the heck are you doing? Why are you not eating this? <laughs> um, but like literally small acts like that showed me just how much she wanted to give herself. Or even eating like fish, she would like give the choicest parts of fish and like eat like the scraps of, of the fish. Um, and then there were like big ways, right? Like giving up the familiarity of her home country to come to America, or never speaking of her unspoken dreams to be more than just a house mom in my primary school years. My mom's whole identity, while nothing nothing is wrong with it, was rooted solely in playing the supportive role of her entire life without exploring her own desires. Now, let's take a look at my dad, uh, my strapping, hardworking father, my Friends have said he has like the sultan hair. Like it's just like there, his mane is very like glorious. And I also think so too. <laughs> um, he, he curls his hair every day, y'all. Like I don't even put that much hair effort into my hair. <laughs> um, so how I saw my dad letting go of his desires for the sake of our family was um, sacrificing his ego 
in his early days in America while shouldering the weight of rejection as he started out as a salesman, um, a businessman. Uh, not to mention navigating a foreign country with very, very limited English. Don't get me wrong, living in Korea was also super stressful, and my dad picked up smoking and drinking um, a lot that he had surgery from a collapsed lung. He also went to jail uh, for drinking and driving, which was a huge wake-up call um, while he was in America. So I share these vulnerable parts of my family's story because of the amount of stress he had navigating living in a foreign country. He held his body um, in so much stress that he had to cope with these different stressors of making a life um, to help my sister and I live a comfortable life, right? Um, he sacrificed his sleep, um, only getting about two to three hours a night um, to make a living for us. So my dad's identity, My dad's identity was rooted in being the sole provider to ensure that our family would not have to witness and experience the suffering that his family and my grandmother and grandfather had to go through. So, you know, as kids, um, we witness these behaviors and pick up these invisible messages that reinforce this um, deeper message to look out for the whole and not our individual needs. But the whole is more important than the individual. Uh, next slide. <laughs> We're getting to the happy part, y'all. Okay, so because so as we see in here, it says, um, be, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I'm going to skip over. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the way that I interpreted uh, this part of scripture is that even though we have all the sin in us, God still loved us deeply and made us alive in Christ. That was before we were even perhaps saying the Lord, uh, the sinner's prayer, that God still loved us before all of that. That means even if my desires may not be also 100% pure um, or sin-free, God still sees my humanity and loves me. This communicates to me that God's grace is actually multidimensional, um, loving me in the process of working out my choices while I do my best to align to Jesus' call to love myself, others, and this world. And I know that God can work um, beyond the bounds of my mistake, I, the mistakes that I make along the way. And that is honestly the gospel, right? So what I can rest on is God's gift of grace to save me from my doubts and self-criticism and to save me from this crushing weight that every decision I make needs to be the best and correct one. 
to save me from my need to please the people around me, or especially my need to prove myself to this world, my work, my family, my social media, and even myself. So Jesus wants me to let go of all of that. Instead, I am being invited to trust and cultivate my voice and desires, and this is especially hard as an Asian American woman who was taught to sacrifice and care for the collective because I've been conditioned to think of the whole more than myself. And honestly, that's not a bad thing. It's just an area of challenge to also know how to care for my own needs, especially since I am radically against uh, the value of hyper-individualism that America is really good at upholding. And I also don't think that hyper-individualism is what I'm being invited to into suddenly taking care about my needs only and that being selfish. So from my context as a second-gen Korean-American woman, God is inviting me to release this ancestral urge to be dutiful to the whole and to even dispel that lie, pursuing my desires, is selfish and sinful, whatever that might, that might, whatever that might be. And so I'm being prompted to unlearn and relearn how to honor my desires without constant concern for the impact on the whole or whether I'm being deemed sinful. So Jesus desires me to recognize the gift that I am and leads me towards a very nurturing and gentle and trusting relationship with myself. And that is the gospel, y'all. And so I leave you with this question, these two questions. What are some practices that help you build a trusting relationship with yourself and with God? How have you embraced the truth of God seeing you as a gift and how have you celebrated yourself recently? And so um, as we go into Lent this season, oftentimes we think of depravity, of needing to let go of like something that you really love. Um, maybe it could be a different reframe of uh, like what, instead of like a actual, like, I don't know, not eating sweets, um, instead, like maybe we can think of like, what are some lies that I need to let go this season and replace some of the truths um, for the season. So thank you. <laughs>